0: welcome to Into the Fire, a Burning Coal Theatre Company podcast series.
1: Hi, this is Jerome Davis, I'm the Artistic Director of Burning Coal Theatre Company and I'd like to welcome everyone to Into the Fire, the Burning Coal Theatre Company podcast series on all things theatrical. Today we have a special guest, the playwright of our upcoming production, Ash in Johannesburg, which runs January 24th through February 10th, Hannah Benitez. Hannah, welcome.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: It is my pleasure indeed. Um, Hannah, I want to start off because I think you have a really interesting background and a, and a skill set that uh, is unique, perhaps, or, or partially uh, unique, uh, uh, at least in this area, and that is that you are both a, a working actor and a working playwright. Um, Where did you start out? Where are you from originally?
0: Originally I'm from Miami, Florida. Uh I got my start at New World School of the Arts High School, which is an amazing public magnet school that some really cool people have come out of. Terrell McCraney, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, originator of the movie Moonlight, Marco Mm -hmm. Ramirez, I mean the list list is endless, but I was really fortunate to get my start there. Uh, I was an acting major, but during that time, we had some great playwriting classes, which is how I got my start writing.
1: Playwriting classes in high school. In high school, Very yeah. Very interesting. Was McRaney a, a classmate of yours?
0: No, no, no. He was my teacher. He was my playwriting oh, teacher. One okay. of them. Okay. There.
1: Wow, that's interesting. So he lives down there now, I guess.
0: Or? Um, I actually don't know. I'm going to. Well, no, he's teaching at Yale, so yeah. he goes. I think back, back and, and forth.
1: Off. Yeah, yeah. I would, I would imagine he wrote the brothers Size Correct. and the the. The brothers and sister plays. Hannah, um, where are you now uh, other than sitting here talking to me?
0: Right, right now I'm in Raleigh talking Uh to you but normally I reside in Astoria
1: in New York. uh, Queens, yeah, Yeah. very good. Uh, But you uh, work a lot as an actor Mm -hmm. uh, as well and I know because that's where I met you that you do a lot of work in Florida. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience as a working professional actor?
0: Yeah, um, I started Pretty, pretty fast out of undergrad getting my BFA in acting. Uh, my first job was actually in with Montana Shakespeare and I was sort of doing the actor hustle of just auditioning for everything, everywhere, going back to Florida uh, to get my car and while I was there, started looking online and just started hitting up a bunch of auditions there. One thing led to another and I started working for a bunch of companies and I often find myself going back there to do acting work. Right now, I'm actually in rehearsals. This is my day off for a production of Indecent. Uh, I'm doing at Gable stage. I'm playing the, the Ingenue track, which is a really amazing, Paula Vogel, Rebecca Teichman, Teichman? Teichman? Uh, great play about the Yiddish theater. So I'm actually in rehearsals for that right now. Uh-huh. And um, people always ask me, well, what do you prefer, acting or writing? Do you think you're going in one direction versus the other? And I, I kind of think that's an unfair question. I I always wonder, like, did people ask Lin-Manuel Miranda that? You know, I wonder, I wonder, um, not that I'm right. comparing myself to him, but I wonder, why do, oh, the bo- why do the boys get to do it, you know? Why do the boys not get asked that question? Right. Um, but personally, I think that writing and acting is a sort of symbiotic relationship that fuels one and the other. I think sure. I, I get ideas for plays based on what I am bored of doing on stage, you know, as an actress, I'm bored of saying... Telling the same old stories as a young woman and singing the same old songs about men I'm in love with. Uh-huh. you know, it gets t- it gets tiring. Right. Uh, so I think they I think they absolutely they parallel each other, they intersect, and they they go with one another.
1: Right. there's and there's a, a history of uh, playwrights uh, as actors as well. the you know the obvious, Example uh, being you know, Shakespeare, you yeah. know, who, who certainly did both, as well as uh, pr- producing Sam
0: Shepard too, right? Yeah, Shepard yeah.
1: did quite a lot. Although I'm not not sure that he ever acted in one of his own. Oh, plays. I don't know that he uh, has.
0: But he he, did, uh, yeah. he's
1: acted in his own movies or f- filmed versions of his plays. So so yeah, that's right. Shepard is another another really good example of that. And and we know that there are a lot of uh, people who uh, write plays and direct them. You know, that's becoming I think more uh, common. These days, but it doesn't seem like there are a lot of examples of uh, playwrights who who act as well. Is is there a, a tension for you as an artist between those two things? Do you feel that the, uh, you know, by all accounts you're quite a good actor and uh, you get hired quite a lot? And um, and so my question is, do you do you ever feel like no, I, I just have to um, devote my entire focus to writing or I'm never going to get it written? Or do you feel that acting uh, is like a stepping stone toward the the energy and the enthusiasm for, for writing the next piece?
0: I would say the latter, mm-hmm. for sure. For mm-hmm. sure. I mean, there, there are times when maybe when I'm deep in the rehearsal process for something as an actor that's sort of complicated or more dense, I won't go home and write that night. I sort of focus on one world at a time. But that goes this, that's the same for if I'm working on two plays. Mm-hmm. I don't want to switch back and forth between working, writing two plays in one day because I, I like to, to sort of keep the world separate. But that kind of goes day by day. I can, I can work on two plays in one week as long as there's like a day mm-hmm. in between.
1: Mm-hmm. I've, I've known of artists, I'm particularly thinking of musicians um, in the pop vein, you know, the popular vein, uh, that, uh, that would not listen to other uh, artists' work uh, while they were composing an album or something like that. Maybe they would listen to classical music or, or something way outside of their genre, but, you know, for instance, a, a rock uh, singer-writer would not listen to another rock uh, writer's work. Uh, do you find that that speaking and inhabiting the world of another playwright is, is a challenge at all, or, or no? I'm just curious.
0: That's a great question. I actually would say that when I'm working on a play, or rather when I'm in the early stages of a new play that I'm working on, I tend not to read other plays during that time period. Nor do I like to read books during that time no period. Kidding. Yeah. No kidding, that's Just. You know, and honestly, now that I think about it, I sort of don't watch a lot of series. No. Like, um, maybe I'll watch a film, like a one-off film, mm-hmm. but I won't really get too invested in, in other stories as I'm developing, as I'm in the early development stages of one of my own. I just think because I want to keep the world separate. Yeah. And unless I feel like I need to seek inspiration somewhere, I, I, would, rather, I would rather not. Right. at least at this point in what my process is like right now yeah,
1: that's uh, that's very interesting to me um and so was was the uh the high school the genesis of the idea in your mind to be a playwright or had you already been thinking in those in that direction before that when did you get the idea that you wanted to write plays of all things oh yeah
0: definitely in high school at new worlds uh, and yeah. i they have, I don't, I'm assuming they still do them, but they have like a new playwrights festival mm-hmm. in the high school for the high schoolers. And I had, I don't remember how many or what order, but I had a couple of my plays. I think they were 15 to 30 minute plays, uh-huh. if I remember. Yeah. I remember I wrote something about a girl a girl who sprouted wings. That was before uh-huh. Black Swan came out. Uh-huh. Um, it was like right before. And I then Black Swan came out and I went, oh, damn it.
1: Yeah. But he took. He poaching took. Poaching. Darren Aronofsky and...
0: took my thunder. Right. Um, right. But yeah, yeah. Uh, that's when it started. But again, I, I never decided I wanted it to be one over the other. They just seemed like the same different voices coming out of the same body. When you
1: um, write a play, what comes first?
0: The ending, usually. Is that right? Usually, usually the ending. Usually, so I would say first the ending and then. The story as a whole.
1: You know, Woody Allen famously said that he tried that once and ended up with a play with no beginning.
0: <laughs> I had not heard that. <laughs>
1: um, it's a true, true. Um, so, uh, so when you say the ending, do you do you have a visual? I mean, do you do you see the play on stage in your mind? Uh, Usually, yeah. And do you see? Um, what the actors are doing, or do you, is it a sense of what the audience will feel at the end of the play, or or is it something else?
0: I would say imagery,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, people, the people in the play. Um, there was one there was one new play that I'm that I'm working on called Gray Mare. That had actually been this image that had been in my head for a long time, and the image was was actually what is the middle of the play, a moment in the middle of the play a very physical moment in the middle of the play. And I I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I would daydream about this middle part mm-hmm. of this story, and then built the rest of the story around what I learned was the climax. What I had been fantasizing about was the climax of the play. So it actually started with one image of, of, of two people doing something,
1: uh-huh.
0: and everything sort of weaved its way around it.
1: Right. The, um, the there's often a, a, an idea uh, among writers. I think that um, uh, that the the characters uh, have their own voice, and uh, that that you don't that the writer doesn't necessarily feel entirely in control of that. That sometimes the voice just starts coming out. Uh, do you have that sensation when you write, or do you feel like? Um, there are also writers like Aaron Sorkin who I was talking to you about earlier today um, uh, says that he doesn't he only has one voice and it's it's his own and he, he's, he's not trying to write different characters with different voices. He just wants the situations to define who the characters are. I'm curious as to how that process works for you. Do you think of yourself as uh, a conduit for, for voices to have their say or, or is this all about what you want to say yourself or how, how does it work for you?
0: Well, I don't think I've thought about it until this exact moment, but my first impulse is it's the same, it's the same way in which I approach a character I'm playing uh-huh. and that sure, there's, there's a base that is my voice, but it's, I'm trying to speak through a different voice to communicate the story. It's not my perspective. Unless I choose it to be my perspective. Unless I choose to play a character that speaks very much like me, that has a similar point of view in the world mm-hmm. that I do. Uh, if that's an active choice, that's, that's one thing.
1: Is that a prerequisite for you? I mean, is there always a Hannah character in your plays?
0: Um, there have been a lot in my earlier plays. There ha- totally have been. Mm-hmm. There is not one in Ash and Johannesburg. Uh, I would say it's the play in which my voice, my personal voice is the least a part of. I, I think you'd have to kind of struggle to f- find it. You might find it in the themes of, of um, multi-ethnicity and that that we sort of dabble in in Ash and Johannesburg, like feeling like you're not a part of this world or that world, or like you should be a represent- representative of your race, mm-hmm. but you don't want to be. Thematically there's, I can find my voice a little bit in there, but in some of my earlier plays there's definitely a Hannah character yeah. or, or yeah. A sort of yeah, a foundation for something that's like me.
1: Are those, uh, are those uh, moments in your writing that you uh, are, are pleased with or displeased with or uh, something in between?
0: I, I don't think I'm either. I think it's just what it has to be. If I'm based on what the story is,
1: ah,
0: okay. I've written a few plays that are about particular circumstances that I can't avoid that because that's just the truth of what they are.
1: What does it look like when you write a play? What, from from beginning to end? So you've said that there's an image in your mind often uh, that's the genesis of the writing. What happens next? And can you walk me through that process Mm -hmm. from beginning to end?
0: Yeah, um, the processes don't differ that much, usually from one play to the other. Sometimes, so I'll start with an image. Sometimes I will actually start exploring Building a playlist with what I think the world sounds like, like I'll go, I'll go and find music that I think is the sort of vibe yeah, of uh-huh, the world.
1: Uh-huh. And is it, is it le- music with lyrics? It
0: depends. It depends. It depends. Uh, there's a a play of mine that just closed a few days ago in New Paltz at Denizen Theater. The play is called Adaptive Radiation, and that playlist I I I, I um, Compiled is almost entirely of this band called Born Ruffians, Mm -hmm. which is a very sort of I don't want to say goofy alt rock pop band with a lot of lyrics and a lot of simple funny lyrics, and that really really was the foundation for the vibe and energy of that play, which was a sort of comical, sort of an existential comedy about being a millennial. But for example, with this other piece, uh, Grey Mare, I. I built a playlist that was almost entirely sort of cinematic, uh, atmospheric uh-huh. music from and, uh, soundtracks. Is the, is the
1: playlist uh, in your mind like, the, uh, oh yeah, I like that piece, or oh yeah, I remember that piece, or are you? I remember that for
0: piece. It? Usually, it's like, ah, oh, this makes me feel like this piece of music I heard. I'm a bit of a music head, and I'll usually then go searching
1: mm-hmm.
0: on the internet and find myself down a rabbit hole of YouTube of things that, um, and I'll so then I'll I, I start with the first image sometimes I'll, I'll find music, I'll start playing the music, I'll pace like a crazy person in yeah. my room for a bit and then I'll just start writing and sometimes it's beginning to end from that point, writing chronologically I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes it's not. It's hard, it's hard to say. I also don't ever like to um, constrict my, my process by feeling like, oh, I need to start from the beginning. Mm-hmm. If I don't want to, I won't. Mm-hmm. I think I'm a little bit... Uh, obsessive about about things in that way and so I try to fight that. Do
1: you have a do you have an outline uh, at the beginning uh, uh, this play will have six scenes and the first one will be you know like that do you define that in that way or does it happen in the course of the writing?
0: It tends to happen in the course of the writing unless I do I do tend to sometimes think of things with symmetry this, this play that, that just closed uh, in New Palt, New York, had very clearly uh, three scenes, well, the first act in the city, the second act in the wilderness, and the structure of those scenes was sort of, new, was the numbers, the numbering of them was very important to me, uh-huh. the sort of symmetry of like three here, three here, one at the end, you know, one prologue, one epilogue. Yeah. But I think that comes from, that's a product of, of what the vibe of the play is. I don't start there. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it finds its way Mm -hmm. into the play, but structurally. Have
1: you you ever uh, given yourself the challenge of working in that way just to see what would happen? I'm I'm just curious because I I hear about half the playwrights I know talk about, oh, I I have to have structure, I don't know where to go, and the other half talk about I could never possibly work that way, I have to let the characters tell me where to go, that sort of thing. I'm just curious uh, Mm. if it's something that would interest you as a writer. Oh, yeah,
0: definitely. Mm. There's one project I have. That I, haven't, that I haven't begun, but I have a, a, an idea of, it's a, and it's a farce, and I've already known that the only way that I can write it is if I outline a very, very particular structure, mm-hmm. because it is a farce, and there's very, it's very specific. It's a machine. It's, yeah. a, it's a literally a working machine, and I've, I've already known. I said, Hannah, when you start working on it, don't write first, you have to sit, and make an outline, and yeah. make a structure, and make a whole, yeah.
1: The yeah. whole thing. And then you can always deviate from that. There isn't a yeah. someone with, standing over you with a, a gun saying, yeah. Do you "Follow that, follow that device." Uh, but uh, that's uh, that's really fascinating to me. Um, let's uh, switch gears a little bit and talk about Ash in Johannesburg. Yes. Um, so, uh, I will just start out by saying that that this was a play that we commissioned, the Burning Coal commissioned. Uh, from you, when I called you um, and asked you about that, I'm just curious uh, what your thoughts were at that point. Was this uh, something where you thought, well, you know, I, I'll take it because it's a job, or I need the money, or that sounds really interesting, or mm-hmm. all three of those things, or yeah,
0: what? oh, all three for sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, but but the main thing that stuck with me is when you said Arthur Ashe. I had to take a quite quite some time to go, wait, who is Arthur Ashe? Yeah. And the fact that I didn't immediately realize who he was to me felt like a crime hmm. and I thought no no, no that everybody needs to know who he is right away yeah. <laughs> when they're when he's mentioned and so that was the, the main catalyst for he was, he
1: was a very important person in the history of America I yeah. think and came along at a really good time um, for that uh, what uh, what has surprised you about Arthur's story uh, in the uh, you, I know you've done extensive research on this one. What, what has surprised you about all that?
0: What has surprised me? There have been a couple surprises along the way. I mean ultimately the, the, the lengths he went to remain I don't want to say it might be unfair to use the word pacifist mm-hmm. pacifistic yeah. um, but how, how long he, he kept that attitude up even when people were doing just atrocious things to him, the level of patience that he he exuded publicly
1: mm-hmm.
0: during during a lot of things.
1: Jackie Robinson had a similar uh, attitude. You know, uh, he uh, he went through even worse because he came along earlier and, mm-hmm. and in a more um, populist uh, sport, baseball. Yeah. Right. And, and so, um, so yeah, Ash was uh, was one of the first there, and and uh, but he he did seem to be part of who he was to some degree. Where with Robinson, I think more or less it was a very concerted decision to to not respond to these people. But with Ash, it f- feels a little bit like it was really part of who he was.
0: Yeah, I think it came. I mean, from all the biography I read, it seems like it really did come from his home,
1: yeah, from yeah. his father his and his father in particular. Yeah. yeah. And um, you're you're not a sports buff. Uh, I'm not actually. But, uh, has this uh, has this drawn you in at all? Or made you it's it's
0: drawn me into into the politics of tennis, mm-hmm. the the gender politics, the racial politics. I like I like the sport. All right, I, I enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not particularly. I, I enjoy the energy of a sports stadium for, for about 15 minutes mm-hmm. and I say, get, I get the theater of this. I get the energy. I get this. Yeah. I get it. But now I would like to go home.
1: <laughs> well, that's when you go out and get an ice cream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: No, I, I, under, I understand um, what draws people to it and I enjoy the technique of certain sports. I do enjoy soccer actually. Yeah. I do enjoy soccer. Yeah.
1: But, um, the World Cup is a great event. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, I, I don't watch much um, uh, soccer, uh, but when the World Cup starts, either the men's or women's, I, I get glued to the TV yeah. in the way that I do with the Olympics. Uh, otherwise, I'm not all that interested in track and field or curling right, right, or right. something like that. But uh, yeah. That's good. Um, we, when you um, when you uh, leave here, uh, and you will be uh, flying out today to, to do this uh, play in Coral Gables, is yeah, that yeah, right? Coral uh, Gables, Miami. Um, what next for you? Uh, what what comes after that? You have other plays in the pipeline. I um, do. Other acting jobs?
0: I do. So once we uh, once we close in descent, I have the, the wonderful in between period of about I think it's about two months where I get to decide where to go, mm-hmm. which is always which is always fun. I'll probably go back to New York. Um, but I am already beginning work on another commissioned play uh-huh. for Zoetic Stage, which is a great theater out of Miami at the Adrian Arts Center. Uh-huh. And I actually, ironically, worked for them for the first time as an actor uh-huh. uh, last summer, uh, this past summer. I, I did Fun Home with them, and uh, they just got to know my work, and we started talking, and uh, they have commissioned me for a play that is titled Gringolandia, which is... It's a play about uh, it's a play about a man who returns to Cuba for the first time
1: after after after, after
0: yeah. he he fled uh-huh. Uh-huh. and he returns to Cuba with his two children, not, one of whom speaks Spanish and one of whom doesn't mm-hmm. and it's unabashedly a play about hispanic identity Americanness, whatever that means to you, mm-hmm. whatever that doesn't mean to you um, the death of culture assimilation assimilating to a new country yeah. and it's sort of a sort of a story about seeking closure.
1: I'm, uh, I'm hearing you talk about the death of culture and, and reminded uh, recently I was walking through the Raleigh airport uh, and there was a bookstore that had been there for 15 or 20 years I think that was closed and had been replaced by a tchotchke bookstore you know just yeah. crap you know mugs yeah. and t-shirts and a few magazines and and maybe Fifteen bestsellers, right, uh, uh, and uh, and the uh, rest, you know, candy and you know, yeah. just garbage, really. And uh, and uh, a few days later, you know, I sort of blanched at that. But a few days later, somebody else, a friend, a fr- a, an acquaintance of mine, posted about that the disappearance of that same store. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering, I mean, we are seeing a lot of that in, in uh, London, uh, Samuel French closed their office that had been open for 180 years, I think. Or I did not something know that. Like that. Yeah, they, you know, the Royal Court uh, in Sloan Square mm-hmm. um, invited them to set up a sort of miniature version of their store in, on their second floor, and so there is a small physical Uh, space instance of Samuel French still, but essentially it's become an online operation. A theater record, one of the great magazines uh, about uh, British theater has stopped publishing a physical copy of it this year and will only be doing online uh, versions of their magazines now. I'm putting air quotes around the word magazine. And Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering, as a as a writer, does this um, worry you? does it make you do you feel like well, but we have so many other options now with the digital media um, uh, or how how does it make you feel to see the the physical uh, printed word uh, disappearing from our culture
0: hmm. well i think i'm I think I'm torn i think I'm torn between the love of, of holding a a book in your hand, like that new book smell. There's nothing like a new book or old book smell. Those are both two very good and very different smells. Very different things.
1: Um, Being one's cheaper than the other two. That's true, that's
0: true. Um, So being torn between that and this sort of, uh, call it even like a narcissistic desire to hold my own work in my hand one Mm -hmm. day as a published copy, sue me, you know, Um, and between this understanding of, well, you know, what how much printing do we really need to do? I'm thinking in terms of the environment and all Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. I think there's... um, I don't know exactly where I stand. I think that, again, there is something holy about the printed word and the hard copy, as they say. I mean, it's something that stands the test of time in a different way than the digital. Mm -hmm. One could argue, well, the digital is forever, whereas a book will eventually deteriorate, but it's, it's... oh, there's a plan there.
1: The other thing that worries me about the about the dig, digital version, though, is that it seems to me that it could very easily be manipulated. Uh, Ooh, that's you know, true. If the, if the only version of 1984 by Orwell that's available is one that that someone could go in and alter a word or a phrase to their advantage and nobody would really ever know it. That's uh, terrifying. Yeah, you know. Or if they did know it, what could they do about it, you yeah. know? Um, that's that, yeah. There's a play for
0: you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, when I'm thinking about what I read on the on the subway in New York, I never want to read anything on my phone.
1: Yeah.
0: Or on my computer. Well, I never take my computer out on right. the subway. Right. But yeah, I'm always I always look for a hard copy. But I think, though, ultimately, hard copy will never truly die because there's always going to be a foundation of people that will refuse to let it. And I think ultimately, I probably would find myself on that side.
1: The other thing that we. Uh, don't always think about You know, we, we did a play a few years ago called Written on the Heart, which was about the King James Bible, about how it came about, okay. and, and we were investigating that idea of the, pr- the printing press and, and that sort of thing. And, and the printing press has only been around for about 450 years or so, and before that books were very rare and almost nobody mm-hmm. on earth could read them, you know, the ones right. that did exist. Uh, and so the the conceit of of the, the the book, you know, the thing that we like to hold in our hand and smell and open and dog ear, if you're me, and um, you know, is is a relatively new phenomenon in human uh, human experience, and yet it feels timeless. It, it feels ageless. Um, um, Hannah, we're a little off topic. Um, when I, I'm going <laughs> to ask you uh, one more uh, question. Um, uh, and then ask if you want to ask anything. But what uh, what do you want to accomplish?
0: End of sentence. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, that that's a that's a big question. Well, I suppose what most uh, playwrights want to accomplish. Uh, well, that's a big one. Well, I would like to have my plays being produced frequently around the country. Why? Why? Because I think that the stories that I'm writing about need to get told repeatedly and in different areas Mm -hmm. of the US and and in other countries as well.
1: So you see them as objects to change, to...
0: Yes, to challenge, to challenge opinion, to challenge points of views that people may may have and hold hold near and dear, perhaps too strongly, yes.
1: A friend of mine reminds me regularly of Brecht's comment that art is not a mirror to reflect the world but a, a hammer with which to forge it. I would, agree. I would
0: agree with that. I would agree with that as, as my sort of mantra.
1: Yeah. What, uh, what needs forging?
0: Oh, what needs forging? So many things need forging, so many things. I think empathy. I think we need to start cracking the hard shell around people's empathy meters, whatever, empathy organs, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. I think that they're a bit hardened over at the moment, at least in this country. Um, yeah. That would
1: said, be the first thing I've said this in, in the podcast before. I think Alex is going to start laughing any minute because I repeat myself so often. But um, Woody Guthrie uh, had a had on the back of his guitar had this saying that said, uh, "This machine kills fascists," uh, <laughs> and um, and I think that every theater should yeah. have emblazoned <laughs> above the door, "This machine engenders empathy," mm, yeah, because um, that is what theater does, isn't it? More than any other art form, really.
0: Yeah. I think uh, so.
1: If, if you watch a movie, I'm not entirely sure that you put yourself in the shoes of the other characters. Uh, so much is done, so much of the heavy lifting there is done for you. Um, certainly that would be true in other art forms, but in the theater itself, when you walk through the door, you're entering into a world and you're being asked to consider the, the people in that world and the uh, experiences that they have. Um, which is which will inevitably engender some empathy, I think, or at least cause cause you to think about about those people and their their uh, um, w- the way they look at the world. I think, uh, Hannah, we appreciate very much your. Um, Saying yes to the offer uh, to to write. Uh, I appreciate this you
0: asking. I'm having a great time working on it.
1: That's terrific. We, uh, we I think we have a good cast and we have
0: a great uh, cast.
1: Yeah, yeah, we're gonna do do it. Uh, we're gonna take care of it for you and fantastic. We're gonna wish you safe travels and Thank uh, you. break a leg with your uh, production in Coral Gables, and uh, we hope to have you back sometime. Sounds good.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening. Our production of Hannah Benitez's Ash in Johannesburg will run from Thursday, January 24th through Sunday, February 10th. To purchase tickets or for more information, visit our website at burningcoal.org or give us a call at 919-834-4001.